Hello and welcome to Minor Books, a podcast where we talk about forgotten authors, books from the backlist, and works in translation. I'm Nikhil Krishnan. And I'm Raf Cormack. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Minor Books podcast. In this episode, we'll be discussing two books, both originally written in Italian. The first by Elena Ferrante, called I Giorni del Abandono, published in 2002 and translated into English in 2005 by the American translator Anne Goldstein. The second book is Scherzetto by Domenico Starnone, first published in 2016 in Italian and translated by the American novelist and now translator Jumpa Lahiri in 2018 as Trick. So let's start with uh, Elena Ferrante, Raf, if that's okay. And uh, as always with... Uh, Ferrante, one question we need to discuss, if only to get it out of the way, is who is Elena Ferrante and does it matter? Yes, in recent years, it's become a very big question because, as many people probably know, several names have been proposed for who Elena Ferrante is. Elena Ferrante herself chose not to reveal her identity, instead to write pseudonymously as this creation, Elena Ferrante, but for many different reasons, partly, I think, for the banal reasons of not wanting to do lots of interviews and book festival tours in which she's forced to answer questions such as, what did you have for breakfast? What kind of pen do you use to write with? That kind of thing. But also for more complex and interesting reasons, partly she believes that uh, everything about the author that you need to know can be gotten out of the text. And for feminist reasons too, I think, such as not wanting her life as a woman to be constantly dissected, not wanting people, as people often do with women, to say, oh, she's only writing this for XYZ reason, or she is a mother, she's not a mother, all of these kind of things that are asked of women much more than they are of men. And, you know, various other reasons. So Ferrante herself has wanted to remain anonymous, but not everyone in the literary world has heeded those wishes, and several different people have proposed names for who might who Ferrante might be. And I think it's probably worth saying right now that one of those names is the man, uh, Domenico Stagnone, whose book is the second book we're going to look at. But other people have been suggested too. Now, on this podcast, I think we tend to be fans of the biographical fallacy rather than enemies of it <laughs> yeah. and think that in a lot of cases it does matter who wrote something the interpretation of a book depends on to some degree who wrote it now in the case of Ferrante it's less obvious that that is true as it is for other books so in the case of Alionino for instance, uh, a book we discussed in another episode, it does seem to really matter whether or not it was written by a great Azerbaijani Muslim with a heritage of uh, blood feuds and riding across the desert, or uh, the son of a recent immigrant oil magnate who then moved to Berlin. It, it matters. But in this case, does it matter who Ferrante is? Yeah. I'd be curious to know what, what you think, Nikhil. I think one case where it does matter is, is Ferrante a woman? Or as some people have suggested, 
is Ferrante a man? Uh, yeah. Now, or is Ferrante more than one person? Is Ferrante a kind of team of people, which is of course another possibility? Yeah, and Ferrante herself has uh, has said on numerous occasions that she is a woman. Yeah. So, if Ferrante were a man, there would be a sense of betrayal, probably. Yeah. The question, of course, whether the betrayal comes because of the actual public announcements of of being a woman, or whether there's something in the books which apart from you know, the, the, the pseudonym chosen and the public statements, whether there's something in the books which announce themselves as the work of a woman, not simply the work of a female narrator, though many of them are also that, but the work of uh, a female author behind the female narrative voice. And maybe one way to raise that is just to have a few of the words before us. So perhaps uh, I could read out the first paragraph of the book and that can maybe focus some of these questions. Uh, would there be a legitimate sense of betrayal uh, for readers, if it turned out that this was written by a man or partly written by a man. Uh, so, That's should we just go into the first paragraph of uh, I Giorni dell'Abandono or, or Days of Abandonment? One April afternoon, right after lunch, my husband announced that he wanted to leave me. He did it while we were clearing the table. The children were quarrelling as usual in the next room, the dog was dreaming, growling beside the radiator. He told me that he was confused, that he was having terrible moments of weariness, of dissatisfaction, perhaps of cowardice. He talked for a long time about our 15 years of marriage, about the children, and admitted that he had nothing to reproach us with, neither them nor me. He was composed, as always, apart from an extravagant gesture of his right hand when he explained to me, with a childish frown, that soft voices, a sort of whispering, were urging him elsewhere. Then he assumed the blame for everything that was happening and closed the front door carefully behind him, leaving me turned to stone beside the sink. It's a great paragraph. <laughs> it, it reads beautifully in uh, translation as well, I think. Uh, and it really gets you right into the world. It very delicately tells you various facts about the marriage. It sort of very much gets you into the mind of the female narrator, an Italian woman living in the city of Turin uh, with a husband, children, uh, a large German shepherd dog. Uh, you already get a sense of the sort of person she's like, the sheer flatness, unsentimental tone in which that paragraph is uh, is narrated. So we've got some words before us. Would it be a betrayal if it turned out these words had been written by a man? Yeah, and let's Ignore, for now, the rest of Ferrante's works. But in general, this book, would it be a betrayal if it, it was written by a man? The reason, I think, for the reader why that would be the case is that this book in particular sells itself with such credibility, at least to my eyes and ears, uh, the inner life of a woman who has been betrayed by her husband and her whole psyche begins to fall apart. I think one interesting paratext for this book is another book written about uh, the female experience of falling apart is Charlotte Perkins Gilman's The Yellow Wallpaper, right, uh, which yeah. is a book, early 20th century book in which a woman who is constantly told uh, that she needs to rest for her own health and be shut up in one small room gradually loses her mind and falls apart and sees the uh, herself crawling in the in the wallpaper hence the title of the book this 
it's a slightly different angle. I mean, the problem of the of of the woman who narrates this book is not so much that she's overly cared for. It's perhaps a more 21st century female problem. Mm. The problem is that she has to assume all of the responsibilities of life, the responsibility for her children, the responsibility of paying the bills, keeping the house running. And that is kind of what makes her fall apart after her husband has has left. So there's there's a nice intertext there. But with both books and with this book, you're invited to step inside a woman's mental breakdown, basically, in an extremely intimate and personal way, which would feel strange if we knew it was written by a man, and particularly if we knew it was written by a man who's kind of playing a joke on us by giving yes, himself right. female names. So perhaps the, the, um, another way of getting into it is, um, even though it is a work of fiction, at least part of the way in which... Um, the fiction makes us take it seriously is by having what I was going to call the unmistakable feeling of authenticity about it. And that authenticity could, of course, um, come in the most literal sense by having, by being the work of an actually abandoned woman. But it, it, it doesn't have to be that. But the, a sense of the emotions, the sense of dependence, the particular quality of the rage, anger, desperation of the person... Um, if the authenticity of those feelings matter, then it feels like they're tied up with facts about the author's identity. There is a question of how far then you need to go with that yeah. line of thinking. As you say, does this need to have been written by a woman who has been abandoned by her husband? Yeah, does it have to be a woman living in Turin? Does the woman have to have a German shepherd in the house before it? <laughs> and clearly there's going to, that's going to be a reductio of, of this line of, of thought, and that would be the, the worst kind of... Uh, biographical criticism in the sense that it requires that fiction be non-fiction and that would clearly be an absurd demand to make a fiction um, so clearly there's something that falls short of that something like a claim to authenticity which doesn't mean literal factual truth but something subtle and perhaps it might be trickier to characterize exactly uh, what that is um so i think i suggest we keep that thought in the back of our minds as we carry on with this discussion. Otherwise, the question of identity and authenticity tends to derail all the other many interesting literary things there are to say about it. I, I gather um, that both of us do admire this book a great deal. Uh, and perhaps I maybe mean, I could ask you, Ryan, what are the things which make it good? It's it's not a very long book. I do, uh, just, to, just to confirm, I do greatly admire this book. It's I think it's excellent, very well written, and uh, and observed 188 pages only the things that really make it stand out there are various different things but i think the whole plotting of this woman's dissolution is so perfectly timed and so perfectly executed in a kind of muriel spark ish way she seems to be able to reveal what needs to be revealed at exactly the moment's in which uh, she does. So every, she draws out, for instance, one thing that I particularly like about uh, the book is how she draws out the revelation that her husband Mario is a terrible man so slowly and and sort of skillfully drip-feeding us his unpleasant. So at the beginning, as we heard, he's he's left her. He's very reasonable about it. These things happen, I suppose infidelities happen we don't even know actually at the beginning that it isn't infidelity that's a spoiler marriages dissolve 
he's quite nice about it. He goes for dinner with her in which she um, mistakenly feeds him a piece of glass. <laughs> is it worth reading that bit out now? So this is fairly early on in the book. So I, I, I'm going to try to avoid some of the revelations that come later on. Um, well, this book, again, isn't heavily plot driven. Uh, it's fairly simple in terms of the number of events that occur within it. But I do think, as you rightly just said, the interest of the book lies in the slow drip feed of revelation, which tells you something about these characters' lives, their inner lives, their outer lives, their characters. Anyway, so here, here's a bit from about 20 pages into the book, uh, where the husband has come round and they're trying to have a reasonable conversation about their marriage shortly after this bombshell announcement the husband's made a little bit earlier. He stared at the plate, then looked me straight in the face and said, Yes, there's another woman. Then, with an incongruous gusto, he skewered with his fork a heap of pasta and brought it to his mouth as if to silence himself, to not risk saying more than he had to. But he had finally uttered the essential. He had decided to say it, and now I felt in my breast a protracted pain that was stripping away every feeling. I realised this when I noticed that I had no reaction to what was happening to him. He had begun to chew in his usual methodical way, but suddenly... Something cracked in his mouth. He stopped chewing. His fork fell onto the plate. He groaned. Now he was spitting what was in his mouth into the palm of his hand. Pasta and sauce and blood. It was really blood, red blood. I looked blankly at his stained mouth as one looks at a slide projection. Immediately, his eyes wide, he wiped off his hand with a napkin, stuck his fingers in his mouth and pulled out of his palate a splinter of glass. He stared at it in horror, then showed it to me, shrieking beside himself with a hatred I wouldn't have thought him capable of. What's this? Is this what you want to do to me? This? He jumped up, overturned the chair, picked it up, slammed it again and again on the floor, as if he hoped to make it stick to the tiles definitively. He said that I was an unreasonable woman, incapable of understanding him. Never, ever had I truly understood him, and only his patience, or perhaps his inadequacy, had kept us together for so long. But he had had enough. He shouted that I frightened him, putting glass in his pasta. How could I? I was mad. He slammed the door as he left, without a thought for the sleeping children. It's not an incredible passage. And just for a bit of context, I, I mean, assuming we trust the narrator, which at least I do, uh, she wasn't intending to kill him with glass in his pasta sauce. She had broken a bottle a little while earlier and doesn't seem to have realised some of the splinters had entered the, the pasta sauce. Yeah, and although later on in the book she does things that she doesn't quite remember, at this stage in the book she's not in that mental state yet. That's right. That's right. So, I mean, at this stage, I'm inclined to think she wasn't trying to kill him, or if she was, then it's happening at some deeper level of the unconscious than uh, she's aware of. So yeah, uh, the reason and... we went into that was um, we were kind of talking about some of the virtues of uh, of the book and the kind of revelations of character, weren't we? And, and just very well done in terms of both of their characters, I think. What's especially good there is um, all his lines are... Um, I mean, it's his words first come in uh, in inverted commas as direct speech, and then the rest of it, the kind of most fevered bits of raging and ranting, are put entirely in uh, reported speech, and that makes it all the more powerful, I think. 
Yeah, because there's a sense that she is internalizing all of this. And and the sense that does, again, drip feed itself throughout the whole of this book is that she has internalized a lot of this, of Mario, his views about the relationship, her role in the relationship, which is almost entirely subservient. She, it is revealed in the book, would quite like to be a writer, but has always, for some reason or other, subordinated herself to his academic pursuits, even though he sort of suggests that maybe she should get back to writing, but not. But any time a chance comes to actually do it, he tells her it's not a very good idea. Uh, And this sense of being, this idea of her being mad develops throughout the book. And there's a very curious repeated light motif from her youth of this woman who is called the Poverella. Yep. Which comes up again and again in the book. This woman was uh, someone who all of her neighborhood used to talk about when she was younger in Naples. A woman who, like her, had been spurned by her husband, although unlike her, kills herself. And she appears throughout the book as this ghostly figure of particularly female dispossession, female madness, in fact, probably is is the right word for it. And I thought maybe we we could read one of the more affecting passages about this woman, the Poverella. So this passage here explains a little about who the Poverella is. The woman lost everything, even her name. Perhaps it was Emilia. For everyone, she became the Poverella, that poor woman. When we spoke of her, that was what we called her. The Poverella was crying. The Poverella was screaming. The Poverella was suffering, torn to pieces by the absence of the sweaty, red-haired man and his perfidious green eyes. She rubbed a damp handkerchief between her hands. She told everyone that her husband had abandoned her, had cancelled her out from memory and feeling, and she twisted the handkerchief with white knuckles, cursing the man who had fled from her like a gluttonous animal up over the hill of the Vomero. A grief so gaudy began to repel me. I was eight, but I was ashamed for her. She no longer took her children with her. She no longer had that good smell. Now she came downstairs stiffly. Her body withered. She lost the fullness of her bosom, of her hips, of her thighs. She lost her broad, jovial face, her bright smile. She became transparent skin over bones her eyes drowning in violet wells, her hands damp spiderwebs. Once my mother exclaimed, Poverella, she's as dry now as a salted anchovy. From then on I watched her every day, following her as she went out of the building without her shopping bag, her eye sockets eyeless, her gait shambling. I wanted to discover her new nature, of a grey-blue fish, grains of salt sparkling on her arms and legs. Yeah, it's incredible. And just to add... Very briefly, another sentence or two from from a little bit later in the book, uh, again, hammers home this point that's been made in that paragraph. This is when her mother is again explaining about La Poverella. Her mother tells her, women without love lose the light in their eyes. Women without love die while they are still alive. So So, so the sense here of um, this being a kind of formative element in 
her childhood, a kind of formative episode or a kind of formative trope, which has never quite left her, embedded herself into her unconsciousness. And, and that's one reason why she stays in this marriage, which has started to go bad quite a while before. Maybe it was never particularly happy. It was never particularly satisfying. But the figure of the Poverella as the one thing she must not allow herself to be, the one thing she must not allow herself to become, uh, seems to haunt her throughout. And at various points, she kind of looking at herself in the mirror and she's saying, yep, I am the Poverella now. That is that is me. That is my life. Yeah. Another, another reason why this book in the mouth of a man would feel so strange. I think we're going to avoid getting into the specific plot detail. This really is a book to savour or kind of endure, really, because some parts of it are very, very awful. There's... <laughs> particular moment involving things that happened to the the dog, a particular thing involving a kind of extraordinarily awkward relationship with a neighbour, which has this set piece of awful <laughs> sexual description. And I think probably shouldn't say any more than that for now. It really Extremely grim sex scene. Yes, it is one of the grimmest I've ever read, but incredibly effective. And one of the things that strikes me about this book and also the other book we're going to look at, and also lots of other Ferrante's, Ferrante's writing, is for a story that gives you such a rich, detailed, internal picture of the narrator, it's also a universe in which knowing anyone else is totally impossible. Yeah. And everyone is constantly making false judgments about other people, trying as much as they can to interpret other people's inner lives and constantly doing it wrong. Yeah, and constantly, for that reason, being surprised by them or shocked by them because it seems like, <laughs> how did you not see this coming? And it turns out no one ever does. Um, yeah. There's one more element here which perhaps will set up something we might want to talk about here, which is the fact that, I mean, the, this book is set in uh, the northern Italian city of Turin, or Torino, uh, but the main character here the the narrator uh, grew up in naples and that of course is one of the things that unifies a lot of ferrante's corpus uh, descriptions of neapolitan lives neapolitan childhoods and that um naples the city and something of what it is to grow up in those you know fabled back streets of naples with their violence with all the kind of stereotypes that uh, come with that picture of Naples did, in some degree, uh, Ferranti has contributed to the strengthening of some of those stereotypes with her <laughs> own work. Um, but it always seems to be in the background of this book. And as we'll see, it's also something that appears in the background of the Starnone book. Uh, and I wondered if you had any thoughts here on, on just Naples uh, as another character um, in a book which is not actually set there. Well, the Poverella, of course, is the embodiment of that Neapolitan childhood and of her Neapolitan mother. So uh, we maybe come back over a couple of those themes in a moment now that we've set it up. But um, this might be a good point at which to reflect a little bit about the fact that you and I have encountered this book uh, in translation, in the translation of Anne Goldstein, who has, I think, from the start been Ferrante's translator. So it might be worth thinking a little bit about Goldstein as a translator. And I know that you had a couple of thoughts on that. Yes, and in this podcast in general, we're going to try and do as much translated literature as possible, so try and talk about translation in general. And Anne Goldstein seems like the perfect person to do this with because, and as some people have pointed out, 
partly because Ferrante is anonymous and Goldstein has become the face of her, at least in the Anglophone world. Or the voice of her. The voice of her, shall we say. And in many ways, she is probably the most well-known translator in the Anglophone world. Definitely, She's definitely up there. And the most successful. And I think it's no mean feat to make a translated book like Elena Ferrante into the smash hit it has been. I mean, in the English-speaking world, people don't read translated literature very much. But this book, everyone has read it. And there must be, therefore, something in this translation. So I think it's worth particularly looking at this one. Also, as a translator, she has an unorthodox background. And she's talked about it in interviews quite a lot. She has never really lived full-time in Italy. She came into the act of translation more of a more as a literary exercise. She talks about how she started, she really wanted to read Dante. She did an Italian course organized by the New Yorker, I think, where she works, in which they went through Dante. And then her exposure to Italian is largely through literature rather than actually living in the place, which is not usual. Translating generally not being a very well-paying job it tends to be a thing that people who live in a country do on the side or who have lived in the country to make a little bit of extra income. So she has, in a way, made it. But there are people who take issues with some of her translating. I've heard it sort of personally from some people, have not ever really seen it written out fully until you sent me this article from the New York Review of Books by Tim Parks, who's a British novelist and translator who does live in Italy, has a more sort of conventional translator's background, who really doesn't like Anne Goldstein's translations. What he raises are, I think, some pretty interesting issues of translation. My general sense of what makes a good translation and what doesn't make a good translation it's pretty hard to pin down in in a short sentence. But for me, probably the most important thing is that it doesn't, in that old phrase, smell of the lamp. <laughs> you don't want to see the work of the translator very prominently within the book. At least, I don't think so. I don't want to be in a situation where I'm reading uh, an Elena Ferrante book and then suddenly I'm transported to the metaphorical translator's desk seeing them in my mind sort of working over these different translations. And the main criticism that Parks has of Goldstein is that she sticks very closely to the Italian, particularly vocabulary, in a way that sounds unusual in English. Now, the shortest and best example of that from her Primo Levi translation is there's this one sentence in which Levy uses the word quintals. Uh, But that's one of those times when when you are kind of jarred out of the text and you realise, okay, what I'm reading is a translation of an Italian work here. And Parks is, is very against that. 
Yeah, that's right. I mean, I have great sympathy for that. And on the whole, I think I'm cu- I come out on your and Parks's. I think yours and Parks's side of it that one doesn't want to have the task of uh, the work of the translator drawn to one's attention. The, the, the translators to that extent supposed to be a you know kind of transparent pane of glass, a self-effacing figure, and anything that does draw attention to the translator is a kind of failure, almost a kind of moral failure. It's like you've kind of intruded yourself onto the scene when you have no business being. Um, there is another view, of course. And I mean, I've, uh, I myself, I mean, sort of, I've only practiced it in the most uh, amateurish sort of way, um, mostly in kind of scholarly connections. And there, of course, um, with scholarly translation, say if you were doing the Greek of Plato, it seems like there's the full range of possible... Uh, styles that there's room for and that one needs to have translations of different sorts. So um, sometimes you want something that's going to be a Penguin's classic, something that's going to be read by people who are not doing it for a college course or writing essays on it. And it doesn't matter if you translate the same Greek word with five different English words, as long as each of those five words sounds right in the context of that sentence. But if, of course, one thing you're trying to do is to work out what is Plato's theory of desire, um, and it turns out that you've translated a word first as wish, then as want, then as desire, then as appetite, um, then you're taken away from the fact that in the Greek is just one verb that's uh, been used in all those four connections, and you don't see that they're all equally relevant. So uh, there's a kind of scholarly connection where sometimes there's a reason to be to, to draw attention to the, the translator a little bit more, even if it comes out as bad English. And the other context, which is sort of interesting in a different way, which I've seen uh, come up quite a lot in... Uh, works by post-colonial translators is where there's almost a a political rejection of the purely self-effacing ideal. So they're the ideas that you've got these these worlds, these conceptual schemes of these different languages that belong to different parts of the world, um, considerably more distant in their syntax and uh, grammar than, say, Italian and English are, which, you know, for all their differences, are relatively related languages, lots of echoes and cognates, uh, mostly via the Latin. Uh, but when you're dealing with, I don't know, Chinese and Swahili or something, the view or, that I'm describing here is one in which to be self-effacing, to be transparent, is actively to distort. It's to make things a bit too easy for the reader. It's to give the reader a sense that they're getting a direct window onto the original text, when in fact, there are all sorts of distortions. So there can be a sort of... Um, moral duty or political duty on the part of a translator to defamiliarize, to estrange, to draw attention at least periodically to the fact that what one is reading is a translation and is mediated by the translator's prejudices, the trans the, the conceptual schemes implicit in the translator's language. And since it's a political critique, I suppose some of the kind of relations of power, an English translator rendering a work from the language of a colonized nation. There's always going to be something um, questionable about w- what's involved when you try and make uh, a certain kind of, say, I don't know, Tamil text into mm-hmm. a too smoothly flowing English text. I'm not sure if any of those considerations are directly relevant here. We're talking about two quite rich um, middle upper middle class societies, uh, languages of Western Europe, and perhaps none of those things is directly relevant, but it's worth at least keeping in mind as a, as an alternative approach. No, def- definitely, and there are there are times when the total familiarization of a text, is, which would be the uh, sort of technical term for it, doesn't quite make sense. So, I mean, just to give an example, so in Arabic, um, people say "Masha Allah" a lot, yeah. which means sort of literally, you know, what God willed, um, and it's used in so many different culturally specific 
senses that there's no no one translation you can give for it. Now, if I was trying to translate that into English, you could you couldn't, I think, say what God willed unless you were trying to do a sort of extremely jarring translation. You might think, oh, putting something like praise the Lord is kind of idiomatic English, but it's it's a kind of idiomatic English that only a certain yeah. type of person would use. Or you could try and subsume it totally and just say, oh, that's great or something. But then you yeah. lose something. And, you know, do I want my characters from Egypt to be speaking like, you know, hipsters in Dalston or whatever. Perhaps we can get into that uh, in connection with the Stanone book, um, yeah, which we haven't started to move on yet. That. So, um, Domenico Stanone, preeminent Italian writer, perhaps very much stretching the name of our podcast, I think only in the context of the English-speaking world would he count as being in any sense uh, minor, and I suppose the same is a different way true of, uh, of Ferrante. So Domenico Stanone, one reason to read him in connection with Ferrante is that, as we've mentioned briefly earlier, he is one of the people who has, um, it, who it has been suggested, is Elena Ferrante. It's also been suggested that uh, the real author is his wife. Uh, and of course, inevitably, some suggestions that maybe Ferrante is both of them working together. Uh, I don't know. And in a way, I think we've decided earlier that neither of us is particularly moved by the thought that this is the question to answer. Uh, but that's only the most obvious reason to read these two books together. The other is that this book and the one that came before it in a sort of informal uh, trilogy, uh, of which the first book was translated as Ties, uh, and this is the second book, Trick, and there's a third book, uh, I think, called Trust. Uh, and they've all been translated, I think, to have uh, to start with the same letter, at least in English translation. Um, all in different ways appear to be in conversation with uh, well, Ferrante's work generally, but perhaps this novel by Ferrante in particular. Um, one of those things is to do with failing marriages. Another is to do with uh, frustrated artists. Another is to do with um, Neapol- or former Neapolitans looking back on Neapolitan childhoods. So uh, these two books, I think they very much ask to be read together. Uh, and the more one starts to look at them together, the more little tropes, elements, repeated patterns and motifs uh, start to crop up. So which is one reason we, we thought it might be a good idea to read them together. Uh, this is perhaps more obviously true for Ties, the book that comes before this one. But uh, I think it's just as clear with, with Trick. So uh, let me say a bit more about what this is about. So Trick uh, is in uh, Italian, uh, it renders the word scherzetto, and we might come back to whether trick is uh, a fully adequate translation of that uh, of that title uh, and of that word as it crops up many times within the text. But it's a story of uh, a man called Daniele, a kind of man in his, I think, 60s, uh, now a, a grandfather who grew up in Naples but now lives in Milan, where he's made a fairly successful career as uh, an artist, particularly as, a, as an illustrator. Though it's an interesting question just how successful it is. He clearly kind of thinks very highly of his talent. Uh, he's quite proud of himself for having uh, rejected certain elements of the macho, violent uh, kind of laddishness of his Neapolitan childhood and has created this artistic life for himself. But at the start of this book, he's been invited by his daughter, who still lives in Naples, uh, and is a, an academic, a kind of maths academic. She and her husband live in the old flat that I, they presumably uh, inherited from 
he's Daniele's uh, own parent. And he's come back to this house that he was in in his childhood to babysit his grandson, the four-year-old Mario, uh, which is interestingly the same as the name of the husband in uh, Days of Abandonment. And this four-year-old boy is quite precocious, extremely verbal, uh, and surprisingly competent in a range of things you wouldn't normally expect four-year-olds to be able to do, and probably many things that four-year-olds should not be allowed to do. Uh, but he has to come here and babysit this this child for a weekend while his daughter and his son-in-law uh, go off to a, uh, a conference. And in the course of the weekend, uh, you slowly start to see Daniele uh, react very, very badly to being in the presence of this child. And it becomes a sort of weird game of one-upmanship. And it's not clear to what extent some of this stuff is just going on in Daniele's head, where there's a kind of paranoid projection of various of his own anger, feelings, his anger, his resentment onto this child, uh, who at moments does sound alarmingly precocious and impossible, and other moments seems like a very, very sweet child. Um, and so it, it's comic. It, there are comic set pieces. There are very, very funny bits. And there's bits which are wistful, melancholic, and echo some of the themes of frustration, disappointment, and suppressed rage that appear in uh, in the other book, just this time in the voice of a you know, man in his 60s or 70s. The setting is very similar. They're, they're both, although Ferrante is in uh, Turin and this is in Naples, they're both in this apartment building. They both like to exploit the nature of Italian apartment buildings, talking about their fights with the neighbours in this one, whereas in Parante does something else with the neighbours. Yep. And they both chart in certain ways the the dissolution of someone's character. As, as you say, in Ferrante it's more obvious, but but here, here it, he comes to these realisations about his career, the future of his career. For most of the, the beginning of the book, he's constantly insisting to the little Mario, who is largely quite annoying, uh, that he needs to work. He's constantly needs to work. But it turns out that the person who he's submitted the work who doesn't even really like it and how much he needs to work at all is a um, is a question which not only dominates the narrative, but is the big question of his life, right? Does he need to do this work anymore, which he's told himself is the reason for his whole existence is what got him out of Naples. And there are also bits where we're not sure we can trust the narrator. There's a very evocative scene in which Mario draws a picture, copies his grandfather's yeah. picture, and the grandfather thinks, oh, well, actually, this is just as good as mine, if not maybe better. Yeah. How much of that is his projection about his anxieties of this child is is much more talented than him. He's lost his talent. And in the background, as in the Ferrante book, there's these questions of academic advancement. So so his daughter, who has come to visit, it transpires, is in an extremely bad marriage uh, with her slightly more successful academic husband, although it's unclear whether he's more successful purely because she has allowed him to be more successful or not. Yeah, yeah. quite told. And the husband, although not cheating on her with someone else, is maniacally obsessed with the fact that she is cheating on him, 
with someone who clearly gives her more attention and actually reads yeah. her work. So, I mean, almost all the themes of Days yeah. of Abandonment are in some way, sometimes it's a mirror image, sometimes yeah. obliquely referred to in this book. Uh, I mean, perhaps one thing to do <laughs> is to get a, some sense of the comic aspects of the book. Um, and there's one great scene, which I thought would be good to hear. Uh, and this is a bit of the book where... Um, Daniele, the grandfather, and Mario, the grandson, are in this apartment, and where it kind of set up for us earlier on in the book that the the door to the balcony is lacking. Was it a handle or, or some kind of lever that, that allows it to open? Um, and at one point, Daniele gets goes out onto the balcony and manages to get himself locked out. And so there he is out on the balcony. It's going on evening. It's getting colder. It's about to rain. And this child, four-year-old child, is in the apartment by himself, quite precocious, knows where the knives are kept, knows where the matches are, knows how to use the stove. And his grandfather's getting into a kind of, building himself in a higher and higher state of of panic, uh, and quite understandable under the, under the circumstances. And there is, so I mean, is, there is a kind of genuine tension here about whether he may die on this balcony or not. Because yeah, it's, that's right, that's it's right. getting cold and it is raining. It is raining. Uh, I'm not sure what time of year it's supposed to be, but yeah, it's 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 a cold time of year, and he's an old man. Uh, and so, at one point, so throughout this, he has to go and try and persuade this child either to go out for help, which the child persistently refuses to do, or to get him a screwdriver, which he won't do, or to call the phone, which he tries to do, but then it turns out he's four years old and can't read and can't read the numbers, and so can't actually dial anybody else. And the kind of the, the litany of horrors builds up like one of those public safety adverts they used to be in the 70s anyway we've reached this point where uh i mean we're all as readers pretty terrified for all of these characters we wonder if they're going to survive this uh this weekend together uh, and so at one of these points uh mario uh, i'm just going to read this out now mario burst quickly into the room a piece of bread in each hand yelling grandpa i'm scared i have to get him to stay here i thought i have to treat him right he's all i've got there's nothing to be scared of i said forcing myself not to shudder from the cold. Thunder is just a noise, like car horns. Hear them? You're all wet. It's raining. I want to get wet, too. As soon as you open this door. I will, after I eat my bread. (laughs) Okay. He climbed back onto the chair, helping himself up with his chest and elbows, then stood up. He took a big bite out of one of the pieces of bread and held the other one out to me. This one's yours, he said eat. He pressed it against the glass. I opened my mouth wide. I chewed at the air. I muttered, yummy, so yummy. Thank you. Why are you talking like that? Because I'm terribly cold. Hear the wind, see how it's raining. The child studied me attentively. Are you sick? A little. I'm old. The cold and the rain can make me sick. And die? Yes. When will you die? Soon. My dad says when mean people die, you don't have to be sorry. I'm not mean. I'm distracted. Even though you're distracted, I'll cry when you die. Anyway, he sort of keeps going in that vein. But, uh, you feel a genuine sense here of, of tension. I've got to find a really hard bit to, to read. And perhaps, I don't know if you, uh, Raf, as a father, felt the tension even more than, than I did. <laughs> 
It's also, it's another great Ferrante theme. The fact that children are not all great fun and light yeah. and great to hang out with all the time. They're often quite annoying and they're often definitely a burden. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, one more theme we, we've kind of... Uh we've only really hinted at is the the other text with which this book is pretty explicitly in dialogue uh, and that's the book or story that Daniele the grandfather is supposed to be illustrating and that's a, a shortish book or maybe a kind of longish short story called The Jolly I... Corner a story by Henry James and I think one of his ghost stories and I haven't read it I think Raf you've at least skimmed it uh, so can I... you just tell us what the connections are? I haven't. It's sort of explained in in the book, and it seems to fit largely that pattern. Uh, it's essentially Henry James comes back, or the the narrator of this Henry James story, who seems quite largely based on Henry James, comes back from being in Europe for a long time, for several decades, uh, to a New York which has totally changed since he was there as a child. He happens to have kept this house, the rent of which is allowing him to live in Europe, and he comes back to the the lodger who makes some sort of offhand comment about how, oh, I bet if you had stayed in New York, you'd have been one of these rich men who'd bet on these, you know, who'd be building a skyscraper or who would have made a lot of money speculating in all these things that have made New York rich since Henry James has been away. And then he is confronted uh, at night by the ghost of that man who could have been if he stayed in New York. So this is the story that the, um, the narrator is trying and somewhat failing to illustrate. And the theme that is brought out by, by Sternone, of course, is this is a man who's come back, not to New York, but to Naples after a long absence and is confronted in some ways with the, with the man he could have been, or at least confronted with the realities of this Neapolitan childhood. And there are bits in the in the Starnone book where he tries to narrate, so he tries to illustrate the ghost with the face of his father. Yeah. So clearly me. If I'd have stayed, maybe I would have become my father. And rather than in the case of James, that being a wealthy, successful New York businessman, that would mean for him being a sort of Naples street tough or something. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I suppose that itself um, brings out uh, something that we might want to tie back to our discussion of translation, um, which is the sense of suppressed anger that pervades this this text, and that the suppression of anger was one of the ways in which Daniele tries to uh, distance himself from the world of his Naples childhood. Uh, so perhaps we could discuss that passage about anger and rage. Yeah, it's a very it's a very rich passage, one of the most memorable passages of the book. And it comes just after his uh, publisher has told him he doesn't very much like his illustrations, I think fittingly. Uh, and it goes, so the rest of the time, I kept turning over the publisher's words in my head. And since whatever positive spin I could give felt increasingly flimsy, the initial irritation turned to rage. That word was frowned upon in school. Teachers and professors would correct us. Not rage, they would scold. We say ire. Rabid dogs rage. But the Neapolitan that was spoken in Vasto, at the Pendino, at the market, the neighbourhoods where I was raised, and before that my father and grandparents and great-grandparents, maybe all my ancestors put together, 
didn't know the word ire, the wrath of Achilles and others who lived in books. They only knew araja, rage. The people in this city, I thought, in these neighbourhoods and squares and streets and alleyways and stalls by the port filled with toil and illegal loading and unloading, got enraged. They didn't grow irate. They raged at home, on the street, above all when they wandered in search of money and didn't find it. And often, it didn't take much to maul others in a rage. La Raja. Yes, rage. To hell with ire. Did you grow irate? Did you and he? Did they? Give me a break. Teachers and professors gave us the vocabulary that was useless on those streets. It was a city full of dogs, and I had nothing to do with my bloodshot eyes, as I roamed streets like the one we were turning onto now that led to the Garibaldi Way. It is a great and memorable uh, paragraph, uh, but it does raise some questions here of, um, is this one of those places where, perhaps inevitably, the translator's presence is more marked than it is for most of the, the rest of the book? Yes. Uh, and so the translator of this book, we did mention at the beginning, but we'll, we'll mention again, is Jumpa Lahiri, yep. um, who has moved to Italy, and as I believe, writes now in Italian as well as in English. Yep. And clearly she is not quite sure what to do with this bit. To be honest, I'm not sure whether any translator could do it without doing something similar to what she's done, which is to just reproduce the Italian word. Because once you've kind of given up and you've thrown in an Italian word on the page, we may as well hear the other Italian word, which I assume is something like la ira. Uh, yeah, it is, I, which both. I looked up, it is ira. Yeah. Um, I mean, the, th- the, the problem yeah, is because there just it... is no word in English which exactly parallels these, these two things. The word irate or ire. I mean, they are words of English, but they're words of extremely literary high register English. And I suppose to some degree that parallels the gap between Neapolitan dialect and standard Italian, but it's not quite the same thing. It almost, ire takes us too many levels up. Yeah, it's exaggerated. No no teacher would ever tell their pupils to say they felt ire. <laughs> no, indeed. indeed. So, which is why and we also... have to kind of ignore the the actual resonance of these words in English and try and guess at the distinction that it must be marking between Italian registers or between dialects. Yeah, so it would have made sense to reproduce the, the just era. Also, there's, I, I think I'm right in saying that uh, Raja is, does have a connection to rabies and rabid dogs. Ah, so I, I think the, the him bringing that up is not coincidental. And Goldstein too does this in the, I mean the the very fact of La Poverella being called La Poverella I think she does it very successfully in that case yeah and I think sometimes that's usually the best translation decision you can make she also I've seen interviews with Anne Goldstein where she says uh, and it's not obvious actually that she keeps the word signora and signore mm. rather than putting Mr and Mrs because Mr and Mrs just doesn't work but yeah, this passage too quite... as well as being as well as being an interesting <laughs> passage for translation mm. it does it sums up this feeling which which does run through the book of of both a hatred for this neapolitan macho-ness 
but also a wistful nostalgia for it too. He's sort of claiming himself to himself that he could have been one of these Neapolitan white boys who does illegal loading and unloading. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's Though right. whether he actually <laughs> would have been very successful, that is remains to be seen. So, I mean, something else that's um, going on here, I mean, sometimes there's the sense of the suppressed rage. And of course, you say he's curmudgeonly. There are moments at which he does sound absurdly so. It's like it's not clear why he's getting quite so angry. And it seems like there's always something else going on. He's angry at one thing, but it's really anger at something else. So he's been moderately successful, but it's clear he's not a major artist. And one of the things that does sort of trouble him is when uh, the the child goes to one of his teachers at school and says, my grandfather's a famous artist. And he just says, who's that? And he says his name. And he says, I've never heard of him. <laughs> and Yes, he's constantly being, explain. constantly thinks he's going to have his moment of glory in front of Mario, but he never does. Yeah, that's right. And then, of course, the, the, which is why that moment when he suddenly suspects Mario of having more talent than than he does because he managed to draw something that for him was a symbol of his own special talent uh, is so significant. And he's uh, also, I mean, connected to that, though not exactly the same. He He's, off, he's also, full, he's just full of suppressed resentments about pretty much everything, including yeah. his wife's infidelity. Should we talk briefly, perhaps, to, as a concluding uh, theme, the title, Scherzetto, and why uh, Jumpalari might have chosen trick uh, as a way of rendering it. Now, one reason to sort of call that choice into question is in part, of course, that she herself draws attention to the fact that an element of choice was involved in um, in going for trick rather than some of the other words you could have gone for. So in her uh, longish introduction to her translation, uh, she points out, for instance, that scherzetto, one of the many uses it has as part of uh, idiomatic phrases in, in Italian is in the phrase dolcetto or scherzetto, which literally means, uh, or it's kind of equivalent to the American phrase trick or treat, except it's the other way around, treat or trick. Uh, it's a kind of you know Halloween candy collecting expeditions. Uh, and so that's one place where scherzetto appears. And so that's one place where trick is a quite natural way of, of rendering it. But then at a crucial point in the book where one of the characters actually uses that word, scherzetto. She decides to use a quite different word. Uh, perhaps we could discuss that passage, right? If you'd like to read uh, that one out, maybe? Yeah, so this passage comes just after Daniele has had an argument with Mario and Mario is not in a good mood with him anymore and he's trying to sort of bring the kid around again to make his life a bit happier because even though he doesn't really like the kid playing with him, he also doesn't like the kid being angry with him. Uh, So he starts, if Mario didn't want to make peace with me, I had even less desire to make peace with him. Given that the more loving and agreeable we were, the less he left me alone. But I was worried because the time for Betta's call was approaching and I didn't want the child to alarm her. She already had enough problems with the jealous inquisitor she was married to. And so as we washed up the dishes from lunch and dinner, he, albeit sulkily, continued to think of himself as my helper, procuring soap, sponge, dishcloth, everything I needed, throwing himself into it as if it were a matter of life or death. I started spritzing him with a little water, saying each time, gotcha. For a while, he remained a hostile helper, his head lowered, refusing resolutely to budge. Gotcha. Stop it, Grandpa. Gotcha. I said stop it. Gotcha. Then... He started to pretend to complain, but he struggled to contain a smile. 
You got soap in my eyes. Let's see. It stings. Don't be silly. It's nothing. Finally, he began to look at me askance, to wonder if I really wanted to play. And when he was convinced, he tried to spritz me with a little water on his end, saying, Gotcha. And so, from one gotcha to the next, as a result of horsing around, he lost his balance and was about to fall off the chair he'd been standing on in order to help me, but thank goodness I grabbed him in time. The tension between us seemed to slacken. And we went into the living room to watch a little bit of TV. So in in that section there, the word gotcha is scarzetto in Italian. And now, obviously, you couldn't translate that as trick. It would yeah, sound extremely stilted and uh, Tim Parks would be very unhappy with you. <laughs> um, but if you translate it as gotcha there, why aren't you translating it as gotcha in the title? I mean, there's a few possible reasons for that. Number one is that changes the register of the kind of book that you're expecting when you yeah. pick it up. I mean, if I was picking up a book called Gotcha, I'm expecting a very different book than when I picked up a book called Trick. It's a matter of, I mean, this is a place where you think of the translator's note as performing an essential function here, which is to alert you to some of the translator's failures. But that honest admission of those failures and the the limits of any such exercise is a way of making you look out for links that aren't obvious just in the syntax. But do we think, I guess the question is, that this title has significance for the rest of the work? Is it supposed to be? What does the title mean? What is the scarzetto? I mean, apparently when uh, uh, Lairi was was deciding on title and wondering whether she should go for gotcha she says she wrote to Starnone and she asked him if um, the Italian equivalent of gotcha I think literally just means I caught you Tio Beccato and said would it be used in the same context as scherzetto as uh, Daniele does in that scene we just heard and apparently Starnone replied not really saying scherzetto is a bit closer to a proposal let's play around let's have a little fun so um, one way of reading it is supposed to read that phrase let's have a little fun um is as a metafictional thing it's something that kind of stands outside the the framework of the story mm-hmm. so it's the author starnone having a bit of fun with us the reader and playing all these little games um by telling this kind of weird story with all these different registers on the one hand this kind of comic angle the grandfather and grandson relation on the other, this kind of more tragic, melancholic angle about a man looking back on his past with disappointment. Um, and on the other hand, um, this weird conversation with the Henry James story about ghosts. Um, and to some degree, it feels like, I mean, you can certainly read the book without thinking about the James connection, because I, mean, I have. But yeah. evidently, there's some kind of game that the we could play with the author by pursuing that a little bit deeper, which I suppose we haven't done in any great depth just now. But I don't know, do you think that would be at least part of it, that the trick just is the the fictional trick? I think that's a I think that's a good read that's a better reason than anyone I can come up with. <laughs> you saying that made me think of one question to bring it back to the first text. If we think it's very important that Elena Ferrante is a woman, for all these reasons mm. about um, interrogating the female psyche and yeah. sort of inhabiting the life of a woman. Is it important that Stavnone is a man? What What would we think if 
Domenico Stanone was the pseudonymous mm. man written yeah. by a woman. Yeah, oddly enough, it doesn't seem... I mean, it doesn't seem like there's deception of the same sort, perhaps because the expectation of authenticity doesn't seem to be there. It feels like perhaps this, uh, there is some sort of odd double standard, not necessarily a bad one, which is that a sufficiently imaginative woman could get into their head of a 60-year-old man, but not vice versa. That's something I'm not endorsing that necessarily. I'm just suggesting that that seems to be the thought behind some of these uh, asymmetrical reactions, uh, at least my asymmetrical reactions. Well, the one, I mean, one sort of obvious argument for that would be that because we live in a world that is largely formed by 60-year-old men, yeah. it is easier for a woman to <laughs> yes. inhabit the, the mind of a 60-year-old man because they've been forced. Yes. I mean, part of the significance of the Neapolitan uh, quartet of books has had for people is, I mean, it's kind of cliche about it, that it, it, it's almost unique in how seriously it takes female friendships. Um, and I think lots of people would feel genuinely dismayed if they thought that a man who has never had that sort of friendship was able to capture uh, the tensions and joys uh, of that sort of relationship. Because the, the Neapolitan trilogy particularly feels so personal, whereas whereas Trick is more of a of a imagined fantasy. Clearly, it's okay to take pleasure in the bits of trick that work purely at the level of the comic, the kind of set pieces. Uh, as a feat of construction, I think it's fine to take pleasure in just that the kind of achievement that it represents at that level. And while we can certainly do that with uh, Days of Abandonment, and we've already discussed earlier just how uh, intricately and carefully uh, it is constructed, it very much is a fictional feat. It's not just kind of unvarnished female feelings are flooding the page. There is also, of course, we've been dancing around it, the historical and political reasons why a man claiming uh, to write as a woman is uncomfortable for a lot of people just because for so long women have essentially been told that they can't write and not as, as good as men. And one, I mean, one book which is fantastic on this is Joanna Russ's How to Suppress Women's Writing. But I'll just... Uh, read uh, the beginning of one chapter. She she lists all of the ways that women's writing has been suppressed over the years. And the, the sort of first step to do is, and I'll quote from the chapter, what to do when a, wo a woman has written something. The first line of defense is to deny that she wrote it. Since women cannot write, someone else, brackets, a man must have written it. Indeed. And because of all the historical baggage around issues like that. That's another layer, I think, why we would feel uncomfortable saying a man wrote Elena Ferrante. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, I think that's probably a good point at which to end the conversation. But just to repeat the names of both the books, that was um, Scherzetto, or Trick, by Domenico Starnone and translated into English by Jumpa Lahiri and Elena Ferrante's I Giorni dell'Abandono translated as Days of Abandonment by Anne Goldstein. That was the Minor Books Podcast. Bye-bye.